Welcome. You are listening to a sermon presented at the First Church of Christ in Elkins, West Virginia. This message is given by pastor and teacher Jason Brandon. Jason will be selecting passages from the Word of God and showing us how to apply God's Word in our lives today. He will also be showing us why we need Jesus. How can faith, God, and the Bible have more influence in your daily life? What is God saying to us today? For this and more, stay tuned. We are in Matthew chapter 20, verse 20 today. I frequently hear from friends in ministry about their victories and their struggles in ministry. Um, when I lived and preached in southern Illinois and you could throw a rock and hit, it, hit one of our churches, that was a lot more common. Uh, there was, within an hour's drive, there were 20 or 30 Christian churches and churches of Christ. So I was in touch with a lot more of, of my fellow preachers back then. Uh, but I still try to stay in touch with my friends in ministry, uh, my, my fellow preachers. Uh, I, I praise God for their victories, and I am, I, am, I am convinced that the victories outnumber the defeats. But there are struggles. Uh, the victories come with struggles, and churches struggle with many things. One of the struggles that churches struggle, all churches struggle with at some point, sometimes a lot, sometimes a little, but every church will struggle with who is in charge. People are people, we're humans, we like to get our way. To many, getting your own way seems to be the sign of being important, and people will try to do that at church. I'm convinced in my experience that some of that comes because people who feel helpless at their workplace uh, build up that, that pent-up frustration of not getting their way at, at workplace, and they take it out at the church on the weekend. Uh, Jesus says that the goal isn't for you to be in charge. It's not, some, it's not a contest uh, to win. It's not a clash of wills. And I want to look at his words today in Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and, kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. And Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you really want to be great before God, if you really want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, what kind of person should we be? How do we find greatness in the kingdom of God? Well, that's what I'd like to talk about today. There is greatness in service. That's one of the things that Jesus points out. The Bible says that we are fools 
to believe what we believe. Look, at, look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. I love those verses because they remind me that when I'm out of step with the world, that's okay. When the Bible says that to be great, you must be a servant to the world, that is foolishness. But that's the point. God's wisdom is going to be foolishness to the world. It makes no sense to the world. It may not make sense to us as well, certainly at at, at first examination. The world tells us that our goal is to be successful, and successful is defined usually as the Fortune 500. Uh, Lots of money, lots of people bowing and scraping before you. Everybody knows who you are. The idea of serving others is foreign to our world. Um, even, even today, service is, is, is when you, service is couched in greatness. Um, I, can think of, uh, I, I can think of a certain television show host who, on one of her shows, gave away a free car to everybody that was in attendance. The cameras were definitely rolling. You know, even, even that gift came with ter- you know came came with making it all about the giver uh, and and came with with making a big production out of it because that's how our world works certainly in the United States the richest country on earth in, in 20 in, the, in 2022 right now um, and it has been this way for a while that everything is done with the cameras rolling everything is about focusing the attention on us even even service um, we we make it about us. The Bible tells us that when we give, do it so much in secret that your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. You know, when, when you give, offer, give an offering to the plate. Jesus says that if you want to be great in the eyes of God, you need to be a servant. You need to serve others. In fact, in fact he even uses the word slave, doesn't he? That's, that's low. Servants look to others first. They don't look to their own interests first. And that's what a servant does. They're, they are humble. And there's a word that we don't know what it means anymore. The U.S. is, in my, I, I am convinced that we are the least humble culture on, on earth. It is all about us. It's all about your 15 minutes of fame. It, it, every, everything that's done, more so now than ever with social media, Everybody's got a Twitter account or a Facebook account or TikTok or, or Instagram or all these other things that I don't, don't know what most of them are. Um, and, and, and people take pictures of what they're eating and post it online, and I don't understand. 
Um, I, people put everything out there online because everybody wants to be famous. And biblically, we're not supposed to let our left hand know what our right hand is doing. We're, spo- we're, supposed, to, we're supposed to be people of humility who serve. It goes against our cultural nature. Everything our world tells us, it's completely foreign to our society. It's all about us. And it's about us being number one. What is life today if it's not about advancing yourself? And that's why Christianity makes no sense to the world. Um, It's why, you know, the numbers of Christians in the world are growing, but not in the U.S., Christianity is very counterculture to the world that we live in in the U.S. today. Good news. There are other parts of the world that aren't, that aren't so entirely self-absorbed and, and, and bound and determined to live in opposition to God's will that in those parts of the world, the gospel has, I think, easier inroads because people don't have to change quite so much. But to be a Christian in the U.S., means to turn your back on so much of the culture that our world has built around us. Um, and, and so it's hard. People are leaving the church. More people are leaving the church than are, than are joining the church. Good news, in the, in the Christian churches and churches of Christ, we are growing. Um, you know, because our message is, is primitive biblical Christianity, and that's, and that's good news. Because people are looking for that. It's just that so many other churches and so many denominations have lost their way. And, and in losing their way... The one thing they're supposed to offer is the one thing they're not, which is biblical Christianity. We can't sell out to culture. I may be diverging. I think I'm, I think I'm deviating from my notes, but I think it's an important message. We cannot, we cannot abandon, we can't compromise with the world. Uh, Christianity is foolish to the world. It doesn't line up. And, and when the world deviates and goes off in a weird direction, we can't try to keep up and compromise. Because what we're, offering, we're not offering then uh, what the Bible wants us to offer. Instead, uh, in, in the compromise, we're, we're selling out. The church is supposed to look different from the world. It's going to look foolish. We are called to be servants. If a church was full of servants, now that would be a great church. That would be the kind of church that would please God. There is greatness in service. There is greatness in suffering. How do we define what greatness is? And what is a great person? The, the, uh, I think it was Joe Friday that would say, what's the word? Well, it, it depends. It depends upon the word that we, that, that we want. If you would ask me what's the best word, that's easy. The best word in the ever is Jesus. He is the greatest thing that ever happened to this world and ever will happen to this world. You know, I think, I think what offends me, I don't like Christian television. I don't like televangelists. I think one of the reasons I dislike televangelists so much is that their definition of a blessed life isn't what I see as often biblical. Um, Mars Hill preacher Mark Driscoll once said that your definition of a blessed life needs to be big enough to include Jesus and his disciples. And he's not, he's not wrong in that. The Son of Man, Jesus, had no place to lay his head. If Jesus and his apostles, all of, you know, the whole lot of them, uh, uh, suffered terribly, 
and, and traditionally were martyred, if your definition of a blessed life doesn't include their lives, then your definition, I would say, is wrong because they were, they were blessed. They knew Jesus, they served him, they died serving him, and they had blessed lives. Um, it's not about money and cars and houses and fame and power and politics. None of that's biblical for what is a blessed life. In fact, the one guy that specifically God gave a whole lot of money to, King Solomon, that ended up ruining his life completely. The Beatitudes of Matthew chapter 5 say, don't say blessed are the rich, blessed are the healthy, blessed, it's blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, right? We look at what the Bible says is blessed, and that needs to be what we define as a blessed life. Acts chapter 5 verse 41, the apostles counted it, Peter and John counted it, a privilege to suffer on behalf of Jesus Christ. I know suffering is unpleasant. We don't want to talk about suffering. Uh, we, we live in the U. We, we, God put us in the U.S., right? He put us here so that we don't have to suffer. That's, that's the advantage of living in the U.S. We're not living in Ethiopia or Ukraine or, or something like that. But, but the Bible tells us Christians will suffer. That's kind of the point, that it's unpleasant. And, and there's never a point where God says, if you get it right, it's going to go easy. I think we, we've bought into this foreign concept of karma, that if you do everything right in your life, karma is this, this concept, this, this religious concept of cause and effect from India, the Hindu religion, that if you do everything right, then everything should go well. That's completely not biblical, right? Um, heavens, the prophets, the apostles did everything right, and were killed for it. Why do we think that that doesn't apply to us? We are called to be Christians, and if we suffer, like Peter and John and the other apostles, we count it a joy that Christ considered us worthy to suffer in his name. We are in the U.S., and we're probably not going to be killed for being Christians, and we're probably not going to go broke in the process of being Christians, uh, and we're probably not going to suffer the way that our brothers and sisters in Middle Eastern countries, in Asian countries, uh, will suffer. There are countries that it is terrible, terrible to be Christians. It is illegal to share the gospel with people in so many countries. I have a friend of mine who's a missionary in a country, and, and, and it is illegal. He's, you know, his ability to try to minister in this country is very, very limited by the fact that they'll throw him in jail if he tells somebody about Jesus. Um, that we're, we're so blessed in that way, but we can't take for granted that suffering is still going to be our lot. We've got to get to the point where the thing that matters is pleasing God, not being comfortable. If we look to our own interests, we will never achieve the kingdom of God. First uh, Peter chapter one verse three. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in this last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, though... Now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. 
These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Suffering is important. It's, it's how God builds us up. I w- you don't have to like it. You're not supposed to like it. But it's one of the ways that God trains us up and builds us up. It refines us in the way that metal is when it's refined gets out the impurities. I, uh, you know, I'm sure they're all over the internet and they've been around. You know, blacksmithing is, is this ancient art. And I'm sure that you know that the blacksmith would, if they made swords or whatever, they would, they, would, they would heat the steel up and they would pound on it. And the pounding on it was to get the impurities out. And they would, they would pound on it and they would, uh, that, that was their purpose, was, was to make the metal pure, was to strike out all the impurities. There's something about suffering that, that does the same with us. It focuses us off of ourselves and onto God. It gets the impurities out. Which begs the question, what's more important? Being comfortable or drawing close to God? There is also, in addition to suffering and service, there is greatness in sacrifice. So to keep from being political, we won't name names, but a certain politician, once before he was a politician, made the comment that Ne- he, he just said, never make a sacrifice for somebody else. And when he said this, and on TV, and Pam and I were watching TV, I turned to Pam and said, well, there went my faith. I mean, that, that is such an opposition for the entire premise, the foundation of Christianity, that God, through Jesus, made a sacrifice for all of us. Our faith is built upon the fact that Christ sacrificed himself for us, and we're to be Christ-like. It makes sense to the world to not sacrifice for other people. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, asked if they could sit at the right hand of the Father. They had no idea what they were asking. They really didn't, because they didn't entirely know who Jesus was. Jesus asked them if they would be willing to suffer for him, and they they said yes, but I think they had no idea what they were agreeing to. They did suffer. In fact, I think it's interesting As Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, James was the first of the apostles to die, and John was the last. Uh, James, we read about his death in the book of Acts, and he was beheaded. John, tradition says, is the only one who died of old age, and old age was on a prison island uh, in in the Mediterranean Sea uh, as a prisoner in a salt mine. Records indicate uh, that the other apostles all suffered and died for being Christians. You, you know, there, are, there are a million books out there about the lives of the apostles because we should take encouragement from their lives, from their service, their ministry, from their deaths. They were willing to die to advance the gospel. Why would they do that? Romans chapter 5, verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. 
but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. One of the ways that we read this is the recognition that the apostles didn't sacrifice their lives for a hoax. There's no way that they would have died for something they knew was false, for something that they made up. Why would, why would these men, if, if Christ wasn't risen from the dead, if they stole the body from the grave, why would, why would they die for that? What, what is there in them for that? They knew it was real. They understood the cost of serving Christ. Sin is costly. Sin separates us from God. Redemption, is, redemption has a cost that we couldn't pay, and Jesus paid it. Jesus made a sacrifice for us, and we in turn sit on cushioned pews and nod our heads a little bit, maybe give a little bit of extra money in our income to the offering plate. When it's convenient, when it doesn't interfere with our lives, if the weather's not too hot in a church without air conditioning, uh, when the weather's not too hot, we don't want to be uncomfortable. You know, too many people give God their leftovers. That applies to offerings. You know, the Bible gives us an example of tithing. For many people, it's just the leftovers. It's not, you know, tithing, take, tithing takes effort. Tithing takes budgeting. Tithing is a step of faith. There are weeks that you may not have the money that you, that you think that you should have, and, and, it, and, it's, and it can be a struggle to tithe. But that applies, let me be very clear, the church is not just after your money. We want, we want it all. God wants it all. Your time. VBS is coming up. I encourage you to talk with Beth about signing up for that. We'll t- God wants your time. You, you need to give it, not because God needs it, because you need to give it. And, and this is where it gets, I assume VBS used to be two weeks. There was a time, yeah, VBS used to be two weeks. Every church used to do two-week-long VBSs, but we all got too busy. Increasingly, and I'm sure not trying to step on toes here, I'll, I'll, I'll personalize this so you know I'm including myself. Churches used to do Sunday night, midweek Bible study, and we've struggled with attendance. And let me be very clear. When we start up Sunday night church again, I have to rearrange my schedule, and it's kind of that, oh, I was doing something fun the other the ne- schedule the next win- Sunday night. I'll have to cancel that. And I can fall into that too, where I get so caught up in my own life and my own board games and comic book clubs and all these other things that I enjoy doing that it's so easy to kind of get resentful. Churches used to do revivals. They were two-week revivals. Then they became one-week revivals. Then they became midweek revivals. VBS used to be two weeks and all day long. They would be like nine to, nine to five or whatever at some churches. And then they became one week. And then they became evenings. And we just keep, we just keep chipping away at the time that we give at God. Serving God is a sacrifice. If we're only giving him out of the leftover money and out of the leftover time, are we really following Christ? Or are we just kind of making a little bit of room for him, but it's our life? Um, again, this, this hits close to home for me. Uh, you guys know I like my hobbies. I've got too many. <laughs> Between, comic books are getting expensive. I like my science fiction. I like my board games. I like all the, th- you know, and, and, and I, like, I like writing. You guys know that. I enjoy writing science fiction and pirate stories and things. And I, and I enjoy my time. And there are things that I want to do with my time. Serving God is a sacrifice. If your faith doesn't involve sacrifice, you've, you've probably missed the point. And, and for me, it's that daily reminder that, that to be a living sacrifice means I, I, the instinct is to crawl off the altar when you're a living sacrifice. 
And, and the struggle to follow Christ is to daily clamber back up onto that, onto that altar and, and sacrifice your life to him again. Final thing I would say is greatness is in surrender. One of the hardest things for anyone to do is to apologize. We hate to admit that we are wrong. I, I've known a few guys through the years. I, I knew one guy in particular that bragged on the fact, I, know, I think of a couple off the one guy that never He bragged on the fact, I've never apologized to my wife. How is that bragging rights? That is the opposite of bragging rights. None of us are perfect. And if you think that you are, you're even more imperfect than than the rest of the world that recognizes that they're not perfect. You can add blindness to your list of imperfections. None of us are perfect. We all get it wrong. We all need to apologize when we get it wrong because we always, human human nature is that we're going to mess up. I never, anybody that's big enough to apologize, I always respect. And the people that just dig in their heels and just refuse to admit that they're wrong or find a way to try to place the blame on somebody else, no, I, have, I have no respect for that. And I, and I hate it when I, and the worst is I hate it when I do that. I, I, there's nothing worse than when I'm wrong. And then I try to excuse it, dig in my heels, try to, try to explain why it doesn't count that I'm the one that's wrong. It's terrible when I do it. We're human. We're going to be wrong, and it is blind and arrogant to assume that we're not. So let's take this one step further. Not only are we wrong, we're sinners. We're sinners. We're not right with God. We have to admit that we're not perfect. We have to admit that we don't measure up with God's holy standards. We need God. That's the essential point of of the Christian faith. We need God. He's bigger than we are. His standards are not man's standards. I think one of the hardest problems of evangelism is trying to convince people that they need God. Because when you live in a world where people think that they're okay, that they haven't done anything wrong, that, that they don't need to apologize, they don't need a savior then. And so we live in this world where people don't think that they need saving. They say, well, I'm a good person. But you're never going to be good enough to measure up to God's standards. And that's where it's hard to evangelize and tell people, you're not good enough. You can be good, you can be great in the eyes of the world, but you're not good enough. You are a sinner in need of forgiveness. And that, admits, that's, that means admitting that we are wrong, that we are not right with God, and that his ways are right. This is not a contest of wills where we agree to disagree. That God is right, we are wrong, we can't make excuses, well, but I was raised this way. Or what? There, there are no excuses. I'm a good person doesn't, doesn't measure up to God's standards. And yes, good people go to hell. Because none of us are good enough. And being good isn't the standard for getting into heaven. And that doesn't make God unfair any more than setting standards for kids. And when kids don't measure up to the standards... You know, parents set the rules, and if a kid f- doesn't follow the rules, the kid is in, is, is in the wrong. Um, when you set standards for your kids, you expect your children to follow them. That doesn't mean you're a bad parent. God sets standards for us. And if you disagree, well, this is his world. He is right. He has a higher perspective. The creator of the universe sets the standards. And so what hope do we have if he sets the standards that we cannot measure up to? And the answer is none except surrendering to his will and giving up ours. 
We must ask for forgiveness. We must recognize that we are sinners. We must recognize that he alone can forgive. We ask for his forgiveness. We choose to follow his son, Jesus Christ, because that is the plan that he has set out for us. Jesus gave his life as our ransom from sin, and we get to choose whether we want to follow him and accept him or not. Our, our, our hymn of invitation today is hymn number 327. Too, too often, we see that the church compromises and mimics the world. That the church, that the world chooses what is right and wrong, and the church tries to figure out how do we compromise. There's no room for compromise. God's ways alone are the only thing. There's no middle ground. God's ways alone matter. We, we look to politicians and celebrities and as our example of great people today, we should not. Um, Jesus says that greatness is determined by God. And Jesus sets us our example. The prince of creation was humble, and he suffered so that you and I could be redeemed. Until we understand what humility is, and we let go of what we want in our own agendas, we will never be great. We will never be great before God, and that's the only definition that matters. A great church is a a church that has one question alone, what does God want? What does God want from us? The sign of a successful church is not in large numbers or full offering plates, but in the increasing transformation of its members into the image of Christ. If you haven't made a decision to to accept Christ as your Savior, um, I'd like to talk to you about what that looks like, what it means to be a Christian, um, to repent, to confess Christ as Lord, to be baptized into his name. Um, I'd like to talk with you about that uh, if you don't know what it means to be a Christian. Thank you for listening. You can contact us at our website, firstchurchofchristelkins.com, where you can also find out more. Have a nice week.